0: Turning your Bibles to Luke 16, and you, before you do that, if you look at our graphic there, th- this series has been about stewardship, stewarding our time and our talents and our treasures. And this isn't, uh, you know, we didn't invent this. This is something churches and pastors and sermon series have done time and time again. But, you know, if something works, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so I think the graphic kind of demonstrates that... Um, That ultimately, uh, what you do with these three things, your time, your talent, and your treasure, flows out of the heart. It emanates from where the heart is and the posture of the heart. And so how you steward and how you spend your time and the talents and gifts God has given you and your money is all about the heart. And God cares about the heart So, uh, let's read Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth... Who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I just noticed on the top of my sermon I have the wrong text on there, and so when I forwarded for the slides I looked at all the slides, but I didn't look at the sermon text, and so that's my bad. Sorry for that. So um, I'm going to read it again. Sometimes things throw you off. I'm going to read this again, and you can just listen or look at it on your, your, in your Bible or on your phone. Luke 16, 10 through 13. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father God, you are great and uh, gracious to us. And we thank you for the ways that you have blessed us with our time um, and the freedom, Lord, that we do not spend all of our time working. We have free time. And you have also equipped us with certain gifts and talents by your grace. And you also give us wealth and look to us expecting us to honor you in that area of our lives also. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to... Uh, Long, Lord, to please you and long to behave in a way that, Lord, um, not only pleases you, but um, mimics your very heart. And, Lord, that how we steward our treasure and our finances would reflect, Lord, your own values, that we could glorify you and be your people Help us this morning to hate our sins more than we hate the sins of others, and help us to be transformed through the words spoken. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this statement at the end of the passage we just read, or you just heard, you cannot serve God and money because only one can be master may be the most underappreciated statements in the entire Bible. It sets up money of all things as God's biggest competitor. Let's think about that for a moment. And we think God has no competition. That's true in the grand scheme of things. But in our hearts, this passage seems to create somewhat of a a dichotomy that, That in the hearts of most people, there is God and there is money. As if God is a competitor. I mean, if money is a competitor with God. Now, money is a sticky subject. And I have to tell you that one of the reasons in three and a half years of being here preaching that I have talked very little about money from the pulpit is because most preachers don't like to do it. It's a sticky subject, and people get funny when you talk about money, but I'm just going to assume that I am among people who love me. I want you to know I love you, and we are all brothers and sisters in Christ here, so uh, I just want you to know my heart. I also want you to know, before we talk about stewarding our treasure, that uh, as the pastor of this congregation, I have no idea what anybody gives. Uh, I, I don't know what anyone gives, and um, I I like that uh, because I don't want to look at people in a different way. Um, I'm I'm a a human being and have limitations, and so part of my ability to minister faithfully to a congregation is to have have the information I need, uh, but that's not all the information, and so I want you to know that also. But money is a sticky subject, and people get funny when you talk about it. How many have ever had... Uh, A close relationship with someone that some kind of financial dealing or business transaction, um, maybe they loaned you money or you loaned them money or something happened and it got weird. Has anyone ever happened that happened to? Yeah, it happens to most of us, right? Like money can make close relationships weird because it's just a sensitive topic. And that might be because it, We're private about money. You know, we'll reveal a lot of things about ourselves before we reveal what we do with our money, and that might be because it reveals the heart. Now, Martin Luther said, people go through three conversions, the conversion of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook, unfortunately, not at the same time. James W Frick says, don't tell me where your priorities are, show me where you spend your where you spend your money and I'll tell you what they are. And another saying goes like this, show me what a man does with his money and I'll show you his god. Because what we do ultimately with our money is about worship. How we spend our money, how we steward our money, our treasure Our possessions is ultimately about what we worship. Well, the passage we just read in Luke comes on the heels of a parable about money. Uh, The parable of the shrewd manager, which we covered when we went through the book of Luke. We did not cover this passage. So, as we were going through the book of Luke, I preached on the parable just before this passage. And I preached on the parable just after, but I did not preach on these three verses chapter 16:10 10, verses 10 through 13. And it's an actual teaching by Jesus about money. And it contains some of the strongest and most explicit warnings about the dangers of wealth. And experience suggests that neither the church nor the world has taken these warnings sufficiently to heart. And the key to it all, the key to understanding all of this, is the opening verse. It's about faithfulness. And verse 10 says this, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. What do we do with our money, how we steward our money, is about faithfulness. Understanding this passage in Jesus' teaching on money is directly connected to what it means to be faithful. This is about faithfulness. Stewardship, first thing I want us to see, stewarding our money is about faithfulness. Now, it may seem strange that those little pieces of paper painted green with dead people on them um, is such a barometer of faith. But in a very significant way, it's because it reveals whether the heart of God is beating in our own heart. I'll say that again. It may seem strange that money, those little pieces of paper, is such a barometer of faith, but it can reveal whether God's heart is beating in us. God is supremely generous, and Jesus left the riches of heaven to become poor to give us eternal life, so God cares that we are thinking along the same line and we are thinking God's thoughts after Him. This is how God is. This is how we should be. Now, that may seem like an oversimplification, but the truth is often in Scripture, that is the right application. Some things say, well, we could never do that. Jesus did it for us. That's a good grace approach. The areas we fail, Jesus did not fail, and He represents the faithfulness we should have had, and if we have faith in him, that's what God sees, and we're counted righteousness on on behalf of that, and that is absolutely true. But it is also true that the way God is, he wants us to be. We will never be it perfectly, and this is why we need Jesus, but God's character, he cares that we catch that character that we grow into that character, whether it's loving other people, forgiving other people, having mercy towards people, embracing the other. That's how God is. That's how he wants us to be. And so what we do with our money is a barometer often of whether God's own character is being formed and shaped inside of us. And it breaks down on a very practical level. Stewarding money responsibly matters to God. Simple. It just it matters to God how we steward our finances. I remember in California over the years, I had lots of friends going into law enforcement. In Los Angeles County, there was the LAPD and there was the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I had friends going to the Sheriff's Department, and the Sheriff's Department would run a credit check as they were doing a background check on the applicant. And I remember that friends telling me um, that they had to get their credit credit You know, make sure their credit was okay before they applied because the sheriff's department would not hire you if you had bad credit. You could have been, you know, lived a squeaky, clean life. You could have, you know, been completely law abiding and got straight A's in school. But if you had bad credit, they thought that was a marker of your trustworthiness. It was that important to them. Um, Maybe they were great people, but stewarding their finances was a key component of the applicant's profile. I'm not endorsing that or I'm not saying, you know, your faith and relationship with God is all wrapped up in your credit score. If you're don't hear that at all. Because good God there could be good godly people with rotten credit because things happen to people, all right? That is not what I'm saying, but I'm just giving you an example, an example of how for some That was an issue. They interpreted the ability to steward one's finances and and have good credit as connecting to trustworthiness as an example. The point, though, of that illustration is that for the sheriff's department, they felt that if this person could faithfully steward their finances, they could be trusted with bigger responsibilities. And that's the key here, because verse... Ten continues. Verse ten: The one who is unfaithful in very little is also unfaithful in much. So the first part of verse ten says, "One who is faithful in very little is faithful in much. One who is unfaithful in little is unfaithful in much." And here is the parallel: Unfaithful and faithful in little, faithful in much; unfaithful in little, unfaithful in much. The Implication, of course, is that there is a limit to how much God will entrust to you if you're not faithful over the little he's already given you. That's the application. That God will entrust things to us, but there is a rule of entrusting more if we're faithful over what we had. And you know the parable of the talents, Right? The master gave three servants certain amounts of talents. You know, one, one talent, five talent, ten talents. And the two servants with the five and the ten went and invested and made those talents, which represented money. They weren't gifts. In this sense, the talent was actual currency, money. And they, their investment, you know, produced a return. And the one with the smallest amount, he didn't do anything with it. And so he was not entrusted to, with more. He was unfaithful with the little he had, so he was not going to be given more because he could not even be faithful over the little he had. You need to recognize, we need to recognize, I need to recognize that our money belongs to God. Money belongs to God. In verse 11, he goes on to say, If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, this may be the most startling part of our talk this morning, that your money is not yours. Your money does not belong to you, really. It belongs to you in a a worldly sense, that it's yours, it's in your pocket, you can do what you want with it. And as far as other people are concerned, it's not theirs, it's yours. But as far as God is concerned, all that we have, we talked about this, our time, our gifts and talents, and our treasure, our money, ultimately belongs to God. N.T. Wright says this, he says... Money is not a possession, it's a trust. God entrusts property to his people and expects it to be used to his glory and the welfare of his children. Not for private glory or glamour, money points beyond itself to true riches which await us in the life to come. So money is a trust. It ultimately belongs to God, and God gives it to us And expects it to be used and stewarded in a certain way. And that means that God has expectations of us. It's okay to say that that even though God is filled with grace, and God saves us not through any merit of our own, that he still expects things from us. Right? Uh, I don't don't do things for my children because there's certain things they do to earn it. I bless them, I love them, I care for them, I provide for them, because they're my kids, period. Even when they misbehave, but I still expect things from them. Because I'm their father, and God is our heavenly father. For all the riches he pours out on us, not just financial but spiritual, he does expect things in return. We're not earning, but we're behaving in a way that demonstrates the gratitude we have for all that God has already done. So You see, that's the grace paradigm. We're not obedient to get God's grace. We're obedient because we've received God's grace and we're demonstrating gratitude and faithfulness as a result. All right? But God has expectations of us. We are custodians of wealth that God entrusts to us. We are custodians of wealth that God entrusts to us our money and our possessions. Our money and our possessions. Now, Leviticus 25, and this is certainly in the mind of Jesus when he makes this statement, because the Bible that Jesus read was the Old Testament. For Jesus, it wasn't old. It was just the Bible. This is why you should not get in the habit of saying, oh, well, that's in the Old Testament. So we don't. Right? It's much more complex than that. The Bible that Jesus and the apostles read was the Old Testament. And for them, that was the only Bible there was. And so Jesus, in his mind, is thinking about Leviticus 25, likely. And God says, in the law of Moses, the land is mine and you are my tenants. The land is mine. And he's saying this to landowners. So in the law of Moses, God says to the law, to people who own land, it's really mine. You're my tenants. I own the land. And so you need to steward the land that you have with that knowledge and in a way, that honors me. Now, in an article published in the Journal of Markets and Morality, Walt Kaiser writes this. He says, because Yahweh is the one and only Lord and ultimate king over Israel, he was also Lord of the soil and its products. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were to give the first fruits of their harvest, which was a full tenth of their crops, which were to be brought into the storehouse. And I'm going to read Malachi 3, and I'll have some damage control after I read it, okay? Malachi 3. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have he robbed you? In your tithes, a tenth, and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Therefore, bring the full tenth, the tithe Now, there's a lot of debate out there about tithing that I'm not going to get into right now. But, you know, there's these questions. Is it still valid? Was that specifically something unique for the nation of Israel? They were an agrarian culture, and the tabernacle had to have certain, uh, you know, yield of the crops, not only for the priesthood. I, you know, those are all valid questions, and it's a big conversation. But here's what I want us to catch about this passage from Malachi 3. All right. There are some principles. Whether you believe tithes is still valid or not, there are principles here that are timeless that I want all of us here to walk away with this morning. The tithe was a regular portion of income set apart to be given. It was a sacrifice to give. It wasn't easy. It was meant to supply God's house with resources. It tested God's faithfulness. So this is the one place in the Bible where God actually says, oh, no, 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 in this area, you can test me, right? Like Jesus told Satan when Satan tempted him to throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple because it is written, he will give angels charge concerning you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Right, Satan said, prove you the Son of God by throwing, launching yourself off. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not test or tempt the Lord thy God. But in this area, this is an area where God says, no, 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 you can test me here. You want to test my faithfulness? Be faithful in your giving. This is another principle. So it tested God's faithfulness. It was rewarded with blessing. God promised. He says, put me to the test and see if I won't pour you out a blessing. It perpetuated prosperity, right? He says, "I will rebuke the devourer, so that it won't destroy the fruit of your soil, and your vines shall not fare. Your vines shall not fail to yield more crops." And this is most importantly, this is most important. This is I want you to I want you to grab a hold of this. It was evangelistic from the very first pages of Genesis the people of God were to live as a contrast society. And this gets at the question of, whole, of why, right? Okay, it honors God, and God is happy, and all, you know, if we give. But ultimately, kind of like the big picture of the world, the story that, that God is telling about himself in the Bible is that his people are supposed to live as a contrast society. That the people of God... From the very first pages of Genesis, are supposed to be a people on display that contrast the rest from the rest of the world. What they do, how they behave, what they think about, how they use their resources, how they spend their money, is this kind of like uh, uh, um, you know it's it's this symbol on display to the world of what it means to really be human. To what it what it means to really live as people who are made in the image of God. And God told Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing and in you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God wants to bless the... World. He wants to bless the earth. And through his people, he demonstrates what that blessing looks like. What the blessed life looks like. What it means to flourish in the mind of God. And so there are certain things we do which may seem arbitrary. That are all meant to be a blessing to the world as the people of God are living lives that are on display showing the rest of the world what it looks like to be in fellowship with God, live in faithfulness with God, and to flourish as human beings, and this is a key part of it: what we do with our money, how we steward our money. So stewarding our treasure is, when we do it faithfully, is a type of evangelism. That may seem weird for some people to hear that. that's a type of evangelism. It, it preaches without even using words, when people see that you don't use every dime you have on yourself, it preaches, it ministers to people, it it proclaims, in some sense, the gospel of God's grace and love. When you are generous with the things you have, when you faithfully steward and carefully take care of the resources God has given you, and you don't squander them, and You don't feel the need to hoard everything you have. It does something to the world. Because when they see it, they're seeing something about the character of God, no less than when you selflessly love your neighbor and go out of your way to do something for them when they're in need. It proclaims the character of God, and we as God's people ought to be about the business of proclaiming the character of God in all that we do, especially our finances, especially our finances. Now, one of the reasons for that and one of the reasons it hits us hard is because we're Americans, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. But I just want to say before I... I have a few application points about why we struggle with this. We know it here. We struggle with it here, which... Affects us here. We know it here. Oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. But our hearts are often captive by other things, captivated and held captive by other things, which makes what we know here a disconnect to what we do here. And there are five things I just want to touch on that prevent us from stewarding, stewarding our finances well. I'm going to name them and unpack them fear, materialism, unbelief, ignorance, and a crisis of love. I'll just start with the first fear. Some of us fail to faithfully steward our treasure because we fear that in the age to come we won't truly be satisfied. We're afraid that heaven will kind of stink. <laughs> A lot of us are afraid that we'll miss out. That this is where we have to get it all in. Maybe we fear that if we don't live our best life right now, that we'll never have our best life. We'll never have that life we've dreamed of, dreamed of, even though Scripture proclaims otherwise. The second is materialism. You know, Paul told Timothy, the young pastor, that those who long to be rich, in other words, who clamor after being rich, pierce themselves through with many pangs and many people have wandered away from the faith following this pursuit. So it's one thing to be good at your job and to really be excellent at what you do and that gives you promotion and pay raises and things like that and some people gain wealth through that way and that's a perfectly, in my opinion, a perfectly legitimate way to kind of like, you know, come up in the world. But, But that's different than the pursuit of wealth for its own sake. And Paul tells Timothy that people whose lives are oriented that way, where their entire lives are about the pursuit of wealth, pierce themselves through, create hardship on themselves, and many people have abandoned the faith because of it. And it's materialism. Now, this is very fitting for us as Americans because we're just materialistic people because we're in a super prosperous society and we are materialistic people. It's in our DNA to spend money on nice things. Right? Have you been to Costco lately? I mean, we go into Costco and it's an adult toy store. I walk in, you know, and right there is the big screen televisions and I just go... And Marvel's like, come on, you know, we've got to go. And you go, <laughs> You go on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out here in the electronics for a while. You know, you have to tell yourself, like, I came here for rice. There's clothes and electronics and there's toys and there's, you know, canoes and <laughs> it's just all this great stuff. You know, Costco is great and terrible at the same time. The third is unbelief. We don't actually believe that God sees and rewards our giving. Or we don't actually believe that God owns it all. Or we believe that God has nothing to do with our wealth, that everything we have that we've secured through our own hard work and ingenuity, and that we've gotten everything we've gotten through our own strength... And in our own power, or we don't really believe that God cares that much what we do with our money. We just—it's a crisis of unbelief. The fourth is ignorance. Some of us simply don't know what the Bible says about money. Some of us simply don't know what God expects from us about money. I—I I, was—I was talking. I remember one time years ago with another pastor about um, mobilizing churches to give. And they said, you know, people give to projects. They like giving to projects, right? And that's true inside the church and outside of the church, right? Um, You know, here is something we can accomplish together. Here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how much of the money we've raised. And people like that because they like to see the result of their generosity. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the Bible also talks about us just giving for its own sake. Just giving. And God demands that from us. No less than he demands us to love our neighbor and not lie, cheat, or steal. Like there is something about money that is so important and it has such potential to capture our hearts in idolatry that God says there's part of it you need to keep giving away. That there is a part of your Income that you need to determine to give and get rid of because it's just that powerful and it's that much of a barometer barometer of where we are so ignorance we simply don't um, we simply don't realize that God commands us to give some of our money away and giving money away is a sign it doesn't have the mastery over us giving money away and stewarding money well is a sign that money is not our god because mo- when money is your god every dime you hoard for yourself right tight fistedly i think of the lord of the rings if you remember uh, bilbo you know there's the ring of power and you know bilbo uh, baggins Uh, he gets control of the ring, and everybody wants it, and he realizes that ultimately he has to relinquish the ring. The ring represents so much, right? But it's got power, and it has power over him, and he recognizes his weakness to it. And the flip side is this character named Gollum. And Gollum, um, his outward appearance reflects the inner sickness of his heart because he's infatuated with the ring, and he calls it, what does he call it? Yeah, he calls it my precious, right? And, you know, in some way, money has the same power over us, right? Like, for Gollum, it was never enough. He could never get enough of the ring, even when he had it. I mean, he was just obsessing over it. And Bilbo, who's like the healthier Hobbit version, realizes that he's got to give it away. It's a, it's a blessing. and has a p- potential to also be a curse to him, right? He uses it to get out of danger. I'm going to keep going on and on with the Lord of the Rings thing, but... But you get the point, is that in some way, this thing is so powerful that giving it away is this way to continually remind ourselves that God is our provider, that God is the one who gives us the wealth we have, and when we give, he promises to reward it, but there's that middle link of faithfulness, that middle link of faithfulness that is like the chain in the cycle of provision and blessing, and God cares about it. And then finally, and fifth, is a crisis of love. One of the reasons we may struggle with stewarding our wealth and faithfully giving is because it can come down to a crisis of love. Not only a failure to love other people, but sometimes the the failure... ...to know how much we should love ourselves. In other words, if you are infatuated with your own comfort... ...you will struggle to steward your finances faithfully. If you love yourself so much that you're just infatuated... ...with your own sense of comfort and enjoyment... ...you will struggle accumulating possessions and wealth. That will be the name of the game... And the funny thing, because I'm going I'm to say I've been victim to it, and I think everyone here has also probably been victim to that sense of comfort and enjoyment that material possessions and money provides, that you can get in this cycle of addiction where something satisfies you for a moment and then you're on to the next thing. And your life becomes one long cycle of leaping from one temporal material enjoyment to the next because nothing ultimately, permanently satisfies and anchors your heart in satisfaction. And there's a reason for that because nothing can but Jesus. Nothing can ultimately satisfy your heart like he can. Money is temporal Money will not last forever. Jesus calls money unrighteous in that it belongs to a fallen world system that when the new heavens and a new earth come, it will pass away. And in the previous passage of scripture, Jesus says to people, after having given the parable of the shrewd manager, therefore, use this unrighteous money. It's not that it's evil in and of itself, but it belongs to an evil age that is passing away. He says, use it, for kingdom purposes, to bless others, give it away, and make friends for yourself who will welcome you into eternal dwellings, which means that part of the reward we receive in heaven will be how faithful we were over the money God has given us. How we steward our Treasure reveals our heart, and God cares about the heart. God wants his heart to beat in ours, and he wants the image of his son, Jesus, who left all the riches of heaven and became poor for our sake to be reflected in our own character. And this is part of what it means to be faithful. This is part of what it means to live the Christian life and be faithful to God is to abandon any idolatry that we might have in in the area of our finances and ultimately yield up all that we have to God knowing that he gives it and when we give it back, he rewards it. And so God is not a taker. He's a giver. God is not a taker. God doesn't say, give me, give me, give me, give me your time, give me your talents, give me your money. God actually says, I'm giving those things to you. I want you to give back some of that and I will reward that giving. How gracious is that? How wonderful is that? That God says, I, I've, I've given it to you, and when you give it faithfully, reflecting my own character the way I give, I'm going to reward that too. What a wonderful God we serve. What a sweet and loving Savior we serve who is so generous and gives us. He keeps giving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now um, For your grace and the gifts you give. The word grace means gift. The gifts you give to us, in that all that we have, all that we've received, we've been given from you. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights, and you don't change. Help us, O God, to be faithful in how we steward our time, how we steward our talents. And how we steward our treasure. Help us, O God, that the character and image of your son, Lord, would uh, blossom in us. That we might glorify you. We be edified through the process. And that the nations would look upon your people and see your very character. And be touched and transformed by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.